Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for the Bluff Church. If you live in the Poplar Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mason Powell. I am the teaching co-pastor here at The Bluff. And if you are a guest, we are excited and thrilled that you're here this morning. And we do this thing at the beginning of every service where we take a moment and we give a round of applause to a particular area of service here in the church that matters because everyone matters here in this church. And so this morning, we want to give a round of applause and recognition to all of our preschool workers that are here at The Bluff. Yeah. Let me tell you, that's, in my opinion, that's a brave job to, to spend all that time with the little kids, and you know, I'd be afraid I'm going to break one of them or something like that. So that's, that's not my calling. So I'm appreciative of the fact that there are people like that back there. As well as I'm very, I'll be honest, I'm very proud of this church when I look out and I saw all those Christmas gifts and things like that for the, the Project Christmas I have buddies of mine who are at churches five and ten times bigger than this church who did the exact same thing, and none of them did as many as we did, and that is remarkable that we, we supplied Christmas for 65 kids in our community, and that, that's something to be proud of, so let, let's give ourselves a round of applause for that. That is awesome. Well, if you're a guest, you showed up on the perfect Sunday because this Sunday we kick off a brand new series. And I know some of you might be excited because we just spent 21 weeks in the Gospel of John and you're probably getting a little exhausted of it afterwards, okay? So now we get to start afresh in a brand new series and we're going to be talking um, at this Christmas time on a rather unique perspective. Because instead of so much focusing on the birth of Christ, which I'm not saying we're not doing that, we're going to talk this for the next few weeks about John the Baptist, this, this unmistaken or this, this mysterious individual who, when we read the Gospels, we oftentimes just gloss over real fast to, to get to Jesus, which is not wrong. I mean, Jesus is wonderful. We want to focus in on Jesus. But we're going to look at how John the Baptist was used by God at this Christmas time in order to present and prepare the world for Jesus. And it's rather special because while two weeks ago we kind of talked about the resurrection of Jesus in December, which is just really cool, you know, now we're going to be talking about John the Baptist who's all about preparing people for the coming Messiah, for Jesus. And it's rather unique because as we prepare our own hearts to celebrate Jesus in this Christmas season, we get to look at the man who his entire life purpose was about preparing people for the Messiah. 
Now, it's important to understand that while we're going to jump in and talk about the circumstances this morning around John the Baptist and his birth, it's important that we know the context that's going on. Because this is not a 21st century world with smartphones and indoor plumbing and in southeast Missouri and things like that. Like this is the world that we're talking about is nothing like our world and what we're used to. This is a first century world. And in this day and age, Rome was in charge. Now, historians in Hollywood would, would, would fantasize over what the Roman Empire was like. And it makes it seem glorious, but only if you were an actual Roman. If you were anybody else, it was miserable. You were pretty much a slave and in poverty and in like abuse and all that stuff. I'm like, I'm talking about these are the kind of people who you might set up shop one day and you're preparing all your groceries and they will come by and they will just tear down the stalls and, and throw all your produce everywhere and insult you and beat you and then just walk away. Like this is who the Romans are. And they are cruel to everybody, but they especially hated the Jews. And everyone hated the Jews. The Jews were the worst people to conquer because they never submitted. Because the Jews have this story that's crucial to our story of how God created everything and God invested in them and God promised them saying that he, he loved them, he was going to care for them and that no matter what troubles come in life, that God was going to be there to rescue them. And that God was going to send them a Messiah, this, this conquering individual who was going to defeat their enemies and bring in God's kingdom. And right now, in the mindset of the people, they cannot picture a greater enemy than Rome. And so this makes the Jews a little bit troublesome to conquer. Because the longer that they're oppressed, the more the, the whispers and the stories go around and the hope goes whispering all over the place. And people say, maybe, maybe God's going to finally deliver us. But Rome is cruel. Rome is brutal. And it seems like every time when the Jews try to, to revolt, things get worse. Rome always wins. And there seems like no hope in sight. And this kind of splits the Jewish people between one of two camps. There's those who are kind of like willing to sacrifice their, their traditions and their heritage and adopt the Romans' beliefs if it merely means that they can just keep their head down and avoid trouble and keep their own life. And then there's another group who is pretty much the majority who every time Rome comes in and says, I'm sorry, you cannot worship God or, or hey, we're going to take your temple and we're just going to put all of our images of our gods all over the place and, and you can't do this. And, and oh, by the way, you have to pay us to take care of you. and You have to pay us for us to abuse you like this all the time. And if you don't, then it's only going to get worse. And so the Jews, for many of them, this makes them violent fanatics. Like they become super zealous and there's riots and there's protests all the time. This is a, a hotbed time in the world. And people, people are hoping, will God come and rescue us? And people are trying to take it in their own ends. They're like, I'm tired of waiting on God. Let's do it ourselves. And it always ends badly. Now, that might be hard for us to relate to in southeast Missouri in a political sense. But maybe in an emotional sense, there's elements of that that we can relate to, especially this time of year. Because while this is Christmas and while this is a joyous time, it's not like that for everybody. For some, Christmas is a lonely time. It's a depressing time. It's stressful. It's exhausting. 
It leaves people wondering, are we going to be able to even survive and, and put food on the table until January kind of season? This is a very dark time for many in the world. Yes, Christmas is a wonderful thing, but, but not for everyone. For, for there are many people out there who are just trying to survive the holidays. And how you feel, if that is you, is exactly how the, the Jews felt before Jesus came in the world. And before God had worked what he had promised, that's the state in which they're living. And is it exactly in that state in which God chooses to intervene? Where God decides to invade our world and bring about the restoration that he has promised. And he doesn't go to, to kings and warriors and celebrities and the rich and powerful because they're not the people of God. The people of God are, are those who realize how weak they are. Who realize that they need to be humble before God. Those who feel insignificant. Those who feel like outcasts. And it's to them in which God finally, after 400 years of silence, 400 years of people thinking that God has forgotten us, God has abandoned us, God doesn't care about our struggles and our pains, is in exactly into that context in which God intervenes and he goes to an unlikely elderly couple to start his big plan of rescuing humanity. It's in Luke chapter 1, we're going to be picking up in verse 5 this morning. Which begins by saying, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This morning, we're going to be kind of focusing in on this elderly couple. And let me tell you, this is a model couple. Like, this is the couple that everyone grows up wanting to, to be and to have with someone else. I'm talking, ladies, you had seen Zachariah walking through the street, and he would have been talking about his wife and things like that, and you would be thinking, man, I wish my husband cared for me as much as Zachariah cares for his wife. And men, you would see Elizabeth at the market and she's buying her, her groceries and things like that. And she's talking, hey, I'm going to make this special pie or whatever for my husband tonight. And you'd be sitting there thinking, man, I wish my wife treated me like Elizabeth treats her husband. Like this is a model couple that are incredibly devoted to each other that everyone wants to be like. Everyone, all these little kids think, I want to grow up one day to have someone, marry someone who's just like how Zachariah and Elizabeth treat each other. Like this is a model couple and they're not only devoted to each other, they're devoted to the community. Because Zachariah is a priest and Elizabeth comes from another long line of, of individuals who serve the community, who try to give hope and service and love to the Jewish people in this dark time. And this seems like a, a perfect couple, except there's a problem. And it's what we see in the very next verse, in verse 7. And here's the problem of their relationship. It says, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so for countless years, for decades, this couple has been together. 
And they have served faithfully. They have loved each other. They have prayed for years and years for God to give them a child that they can call their own. But they're well past the age of having a child now. And they don't have the one thing that they have longed for, second only to hoping that God would rescue their people and free them from the oppression in Rome. And this is kind of humiliating if you think about it. Because Zacharias serves in the temple. He's a priest. People look at him and they think God should be answering his prayers because he has served so faithfully for God. And they look at him and they know for decades Zechariah has prayed, Father, please give me a child and God has not answered it. And this would be humiliating because people would start to think, has Zachariah and Elizabeth, have they done something that no one is aware of? Is, are they paying for some sort of sin? Or, or maybe they're just looking at it and it's like, maybe God just doesn't care. Can you imagine the weight that, that's on Zachariah's shoulders? That every day he has to remind people over and over, hey, don't worry, God exists, God loves you, God is trying to do something big, he's going to fix all this. And they look at him and say, hey, Zachary, you've been praying for decades for this, why isn't God answering your prayers? Like face it, Zachariah, God has forgotten you, and God has abandoned you. Can you imagine the weight that's on his shoulders? Like he's in a, a routine of, oh, let me just keep going through the motions, because if he stops, he might snap with the pressure. And then a day comes that's very special for a priest. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where they get to go into the, the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred spot in the entire temple, a spot where it's very rare for a priest to go back there. And Zechariah gets chosen, saying, and they're, they're saying, hey, Zechariah, we want you to go back there, light the candles, pray for the people of Israel, pray for our deliverance. And this is a huge honor, okay? But it's also a great danger. Because priests have died doing this. Like I'm talking, they have to tie a, a belt of rope behind him with bells and stuff like that because people have died doing this. If they go in and they're disrespectful before God because this was the spot it was believed that God sat in the entire world to judge the world. And Zachariah gets chosen. So this is both an honor and a great risk. And he goes into it, and he gets there, and he's, he's lighting the candles. He's doing all the things he's supposed to be doing. He's praying, God, please deliver us. Please rescue us from uh, the Romans. Please, won't you be king now again, Father, and send us your Messiah. But he's also selfish in this moment. And I, I, you can't really blame him because he also starts praying, God, please give me a son. Like, this is the once-in-a-lifetime moment to be in a, a spot that's believed that God's presence resided. And he's come to, like, right before the feet of God, pretty much, and saying, God, I, hopefully you'll hear me right here. Can I please have a son? And what's really cool is what happens next. When we jump down to uh, verse 11. And it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he, he saw him, and, and fear fell upon him. And so Zechariah, picture this, Zechariah's there, and he's lit the candles, and, and he's saying the prayers, and then he's all alone, and then poof, an angel appears. And, and Zechariah is just terrified. He falls on the ground. He's in the, the fetal position. He's pretty much crying, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. Like, he can't believe that this is happening, that an angel from heaven 
from God is in the midst of this moment. And this angel looks at him and says in verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And that's wonderful news that God has heard their prayers and instead of just magically or whatever, poof, Elizabeth is pregnant. No, he decides, let me send an angel to speak with him directly to say, hey, look, you're going to be with child soon. I know you're an old man, but, but God is mighty. God has heard your prayers and he's going to give you a son. But this is no ordinary son. This is no ordinary individual. This is an individual who grows up to be known as John the Baptist. And the angel describes who John the Baptist is in the very next verse of of 14 of of who John is supposed to be and the role he's supposed to have in preparing people's hearts for Jesus. And it's in verse 14. He says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah can't believe what he's hearing. Not only is God saying, look, you're going to have a son. This son is going to be special. This son is going to be crucial preparing people for the great work that God was about to do in Jesus when Jesus came. And Zechariah, he's stunned. You can imagine that he's probably a little bit terrified, but he has spent decades in a world of empty promises, in a world of, of being let down, of disappointments. And so he does what any one of us would probably do in this situation. He asks, what's the proof? Proof is in the pudding, right? So what's the sign that this is going to work? What's the sign that this is true? Like as if speaking to an angel in the holiest place on the entire planet is not enough proof. And so this angel gets offended and the angel says to him in verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, this punishment might sound rather harsh, of like, hey, you want a sign? The sign is that you cannot speak. And that sounds rather harsh, but we have to understand that while God invites humanity into his plans, he does not necessarily need humanity to carry out his plans. Because God is basically saying, Zachariah, this is happening. You best get on board or else. Because I'm doing this no matter what. And you want proof? The proof would be the fact that you, who your job is to proclaim God's word and God's truth and God's hope and God's love to the world, you will be unable to speak. And there's great irony there. So Zechariah kind of stumbles out of the temple, and he's been back there for a while, and people are a little concerned, like, okay, something must have happened. He's been back here a while, and they go pressuring him, Zechariah, tell us what's going on, but he cannot speak. Can't form a word. 
He came and when he goes home to try to tell his wife about his day, and she's probably wondering, how was it? Because you've waited so long for this one special moment. How was it? He can't even tell her, but that's all right because she is overjoyed to tell him that she just found out that she's pregnant. And I can imagine Zechariah being stunned, thinking, wow, God was right. Like God had intervened into their lives. He had stepped in into the mess of their problems and he had fulfilled it. He had been a promise keeper to what he said. And months go by. And I imagine Zachariah just sitting there quietly thinking about these things. And months go by and it comes time for the baby to be born and it's a healthy baby boy and he's not named at the birth like what we name. Instead, eight days go by and they follow the custom of the Jews where on the eighth day they they circumcise the baby to to mark him as a Jew and it's at that moment where they're supposed to name the baby. And since Zachariah can't talk, they ask Elizabeth, hey, what's the name of the baby? And she tells him John, because that's what the angel Gabriel told him to name the baby. People are like, no, 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 this is not right. You can't name him John, because no one in your family has ever been named John. You should name him someone influential, someone important in your family. Like, name him after Zachariah, the, the priest, or name him after someone else in your family. And she tries to argue with him, no, 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 his name is John. He's my baby. I get to name him. And so they, they ask Zechariah, Zechariah, surely you have another opinion on this. Surely you want to name him Junior or something like that. So what would you name him? And they give him some writing tablets to write this down. And this is the test for Zechariah. Because he failed the first test of believing that God was doing what he said he was going to do. And so now he's given a second chance of basically saying, do you believe in what I'm doing? And so here's what Zechariah says, or he writes it down. Verse 63, when he asked for a writing tablet, he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God, and right there, Zechariah has passed the test. He has done what he should have done long ago when God came to him and he sent the angel Gabriel and said, look, this is what's going to happen. He should have praised God right there in that moment. But he failed. But he was given a second chance to do that. And what he says next is is what I want us to really focus in on this morning and really grasp are the words of which Zechariah says when he's finally able to speak after nine months of silence. And it's this in verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now we come at this text in a rather unique perspective. It's not the fact that it's been 2,000 years later or the fact that none of us are Jews in this room. It's the fact that we just finished the story of the Gospel of John, of looking at Jesus, fulfilling this very promise that Zechariah is proclaiming. Because in Jesus, we saw God be faithful to his covenant promises. And what I mean is that in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, page one, if you're wondering when that's at, okay? So if you open that up and there's Genesis, in about chapter 12 or 16 off the top of my head, there's this story where God is speaking to Abraham, who is the father of the entire Jewish people. 
And Abraham is a man who doesn't have children himself yet at that point. And God's saying, look, I'm going to use your family, and they're going to be more numerous than the stars, and I'm going to use your family to restore what was broken. What was taken when humanity sinned against God, God was going to use that family, of which by faith in Jesus we get to be part of. Because Jesus came to fulfill those promises. And Zechariah, while he doesn't know the details, he doesn't know what, what God is about to do, he knows that God has been faithful in giving him a son, and so God must be faithful to the bigger promises of which Christ came to fulfill, of which we so desperately needed. And the reason being is because God is holy and righteous and good, and we are not. And when we spat in his face, when we rebelled, because that is the very nature of our heart, God in all his, his mighty decided not to destroy us like we deserved, but decided instead that he was going to put the pieces back together. Making promises, saying that this, this mess that we've created was not bigger than him. And he promised that he was going to fix things by sending a Messiah who was going to come and bring in God's kingdom and begin the work of restoring everything. And so Christ came and Christ died for our sins of which we did not deserve. You are not worthy of that. But Christ, for the glory of God and for his love for you, took the cross, suffered and died, and three days later rose again so that we who have faith in what God has done in Jesus, we might be part of the family of God that we could be restored and to be what we were supposed to be. Children of God. Where we have value. Where our lives have meaning. Where we are part of a purpose that we were originally designed to be a part of. And Zechariah, he's spent his entire life hearing how God was going to do this, and he doesn't know the exact details. But he's proclaiming this moment that God is faithful, that God was going to keep his promises. And I'm sure people are wondering, Zechariah, where's the proof? And he smiles and points at his son, who's crying next to him, and says, this is the proof. Because God not only gave us a son when we desired it, when we prayed for it, when we begged for it, but told us our son was going to be used to prepare people for what Jesus was going to do. Because God had not forgotten his people. And that's what I want us to focus on. That's why I want you, if you walk away remembering anything else, please remember this. God has not forgotten you or his promises. God has not forgotten you or his promises. I can get how hard that is to believe or to, to think about, or even remember, especially this time of year. Because yes, it's Christmas time. Yes, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, but this is not always easy for everyone else. And I speak from experience in that, because Christmas has never been easy for me. You see, growing up, Christmas for me meant one of two things. It meant either my dad was deployed on a battlefield in some part of the country, where we, or some part of the, the world that we were not allowed to know of, and so we spent Christmas morning wondering, is he even still alive? Or we knew in about a week he was going to be deployed on my birthday. And so I never knew, am I, is my dad awake or is he alive? Or am I about to say goodbye to him for the last time and not see or hear from him again for nine months? Like that's what I grew up with. So, so Christmas has always been painful because in the midst of that, there was always fighting. There's always pain. 
not every Christmas was bad. There, there were some good ones in there, but there was always an element or an air of pain involved. I'm not one of those like big, cheery, you know, uh, all the, the fluff of Christmas and stuff like that. Like that doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come out of me very well, which creates some problems because Jody, my wife, is a Christmas nut. Like, she puts the tree up and all that stuff the day after Halloween, okay? Um, and if I let her, she would play Christmas music and, and the Hallmark movies year-round, okay? If I let her. That's what she would do. And so between the two of us, I'm more like Scrooge, who wants to be more closed office, and she's more like Buddy the Elf at this time of year, okay? <laughs> so needless to say, we've, we've had a lot of arguments over the years when it comes to Christmas, now, I, I don't say this so you can feel bad or anything like that. I, I say this to say that I'm still a work in progress. And that every year I, I come to love Christmas a, a little bit more. Like this year, I even like, helped Jody put up the Christmas tree. And, and I even bought an ugly Christmas sweater and will wear it next week. Like I, I'm, I'm slowly warming up after years of, of pain. I'm slowly warming up to Christmas. And so I say this to say that I'm not perfect. And that I've got problems. But you know what? So do you guys. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean to say that I can understand if there's some people in the room where this is not a good Christmas. Where there's, where there's stress, where there's exhaustion, where there's fear of will we be able to last the end of the month financially. Where there's disappointments, where there's loneliness, where there's maybe pain from seeing a new empty seat this time of year, or, or the fact that every year there's those same empty seats that once ago were filled. I don't say this to bring up pain. Please believe me on that. I'm not saying this to bring up pain. I'm saying this so that you can be reminded that God has not forgotten you. Because how you maybe feel is exactly the space in which God wants to step into to remind you that you're not alone. That in all the troubles that comes with this holiday season, which is, I know it's wonderful time of year, there are still troubles. And I want you to remember, God has not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. He's not left you. He cares deeply for you. Through all the troubles, he's not forgotten you. He's, he did not forget Zechariah and Elizabeth. He didn't forget his promises made to Abraham, the Israelites. And if he can remember all those things and invest in them and be there, then what you're going through, he's not forgotten you either, but still loves you. Here at the bluff, like we are overjoyed of this time of year, what it really means of Christ coming into our world and how Jesus changed everything and made a way so that we can know God and be with God and be what we were supposed to be and have value and meaning and all the wonderful things that comes with that. But we're also passionately reminding you, as difficult as it can be in this time of year, you are not alone. You've not been forgotten. And we want you to, to be aware of that. Your church hasn't forgotten you. Beyond anything else, God has not. And that's what's wonderful about this time of year. 
of the Advent season where our hearts start to, to turn towards thinking about God, that we remember God invaded our world. God came to make his dwelling in the pain and the darkness so that he could be what we could never be and we could be what we were supposed to be. And so when you go out here and you get a scary diagnosis, you get that rejection, you, you spend all your money to buy your kids that gift and they open it and they're, they're not satisfied. All the disappointments that come from this time of year. Walk away remembering, please, that God has not forgotten you. But he still loves you. And if you need to talk to someone about, about what's going on in your life, we want to give you that opportunity. So here in a minute, the band's going to come up and they're going to be singing and leading us in worship of how God remembers his promises, how God remembers us, and how we can respond adoring him. But if you need to talk to someone, I want you to know that, that me and the elders will be in the back of the room as we are every single Sunday. If anyone ever needs to talk, everyone needs to be reminded or encouraged of who God is and what God does for us, especially at this time of year. We want to give you the opportunity. But beyond anything else, we want you to remember, as I've said before, because I cannot say this enough because it's so easy to forget it, God has not forgotten you or his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who not only sees our mess, but you so desperately wanted to step in and fix it. And you did that ultimately through Jesus, but it's wonderful that even before Jesus came into our world, you were still working to remind people of how good you are. Of how, despite how we might feel or what we might see, we can still know that you have not forgotten us. That you're still there and you still love us. And so Father, we thank you so much for this time of year and all that it means, but we thank you more than anything that you are a God who wants to be in our lives, that you have not forgotten us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.